Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 195 of the Mom Hour. I am Sarah Powers, here as always with Megan Francis. Hey, Megan. Hey, Sarah. So guys, we have a lot to get to today. We are doing the continuation of last week's topic, which is in general terms about helicopter parenting and raising independent kids. But I don't know, Megan, every time I say those words, I'm like, ah, but it's really so much more nuanced. It's than more that. nuanced than that. And, and let's let's just like back this up really quick or take the bigger view that like the whole helicopter parent um, term was coined like not that long ago, yeah. like 15 years, maybe. I, I kind of remember overparenting being used, that word being used a lot when, um, when like, I don't know, I was a younger parent, but I did not personally hear helicopter parenting until sometime in the 2000s. Yeah, I, I think say. that's probably right. I just read that book that talked about the origins and I've already forgotten. But for our purposes, it wasn't really part of regular parenting vernacular until more recently. Right, Agreed. right. And so now we all, it's like this thing that we're all supposed to believe exists, mm -hmm. which I think is just interesting. Like, isn't it funny how something can, um, I don't know, just like tap into the collective consciousness and be, and get kind of like sucked up as this thing. Now we all have to be against. Right. And, and, and it's so much more nuanced than that. And it, anytime you have something so oversimplified like that, it puts people on the defensive. Like right. I'm not helicoptering. I'm just, you know, doing this other thing, but there's a reason for it. And so it kind of puts us in this position of defense. So I think that's what we're trying to take down a little bit. Um, last week, in a nutshell, if you missed it, we just kind of looked at different ages and stages. And I, I don't know, the opportunities we have to start to nudge kids toward maybe a little bit more independence than yeah. we are comfortable with. Um, but we also just really explored this whole concept of stepping back a little bit, avoiding the helicoptering or the overparenting trap and what that looks like at each stage. And then what right. I thought we would do today um, is get into some more specific scenarios. We got some great listener feedback. We're going to play some clips and they might not be what you think. Like we got a couple right. of clips from people who wish they had helicoptered a little bit more. And yeah. so we have some really interesting feedback um, and also just some common scenarios, I think, that come up um, that feel like, oh, how, how involved should I be here? Or yeah. it's so hard to step back. So it is hard to step back. And I want to also just kind of address that whole I wish I had thing. Mm -hmm. um, there are so like you are not going to get to the end of your parenting journey. And by that, I mean, like parenting younger minors. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to raise a kid into adulthood and have no regrets. Like you're going right. to, there's going right. to be a time you're going to think to yourself, I wish I had done X or I wish I had not done Y. Mm -hmm. Maybe this would have been easier for him or her, or maybe mm -hmm. this would have turned out better or whatever. And we just don't know. So mm -hmm. like, like we just really want to encourage everybody to, maybe push themselves to try things a little bit differently and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, like there's no magic. There's not a magic potion there's, here. There's, there's no, no magic. Recipe. And right. <laughs> what feels like in your gut right to you. And that, that gut feeling takes a while to start to listen to, but is most likely kind of providing you some information. If that exactly. makes sense. Like, well, no, there's yep. nothing that we can tell you today or last week or in any of our episodes that is more prescriptive than what you already know between you and your kid. That's like a blanket yep. statement about our that show. That was a blanket statement. <laughs> um, yeah. We have a I lot. I should go on a t-shirt. Or right? a blanket. <laughs> a blanket statement. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Okay, we have a lot to cover, but I want to actually start with a clip that we got from our listener, Laura, who just kind of gave some nice feedback about the episode and is a nice way to set this up. So let's hear from Laura. Hi, Megan and Sarah. This is Laura Holt, a longtime listener and mom of four from Indiana. I just wanted to say that the most recent episode has probably been my most favorite of any you've all have done. It is just timely and so, so important. I am on the cusp of kids who are about to transition into intermediate school. And as education gets further along and things become a little bit more important, I definitely want to step back and really give my kids the opportunities to become independent and to grow as adults as it's so, so important. So just wanted to say thank you for the amazing episode. I can't wait to hear part two and keep up the great work. Well, thank you for that, Laura. That that um, was great. Yeah. And we got some really nice emails from you guys as well. And it's, it is not easy for us to tackle these tougher topics that can kind of feel like, Oh, are we, I don't know, not passing judgment, but it's delicate. And so whenever you guys encourage us that way, it feels very good. We love it. Um, okay. Well, before we get into it, we're going to talk about our first sponsor and we are welcoming back Lion Rock Recovery as a sponsor today. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling and they're really a good option for those who might not feel that a traditional inpatient program is right for them. Yeah. It turns out that's a lot of people. So mm-hmm. um, I thought this was really interesting. Lion Rock recently surveyed their clients and alumni and found that almost half of them said they would not seek treatment if they had to do it in a traditional setting, like a treatment center. And in fact, only about 10% of the 20 million Americans struggling with substance use get help. Um, That is so heartbreaking, but I can't help but think it's because it's so personal Mm -hmm. and hard to get help in a kind of a public setting. And then especially add on being a mom with lots of responsibilities and commitments, like how would you even do it? Yeah. Well, a big part of why Lion Rock works so well is that treatment happens via video conference on a flexible schedule. So they offer a program called Health Balance for people whose goal is moderation rather than abstinence. And I really like that they're just able to meet people where they are in their struggle with alcohol rather than labeling everybody and kind of treating them one certain way. Yeah, I love that because for people with a complicated relationship with alcohol, it's not always as black and white as it can seem. Um, But like, let's get back to this video conference thing. That is such a gift for moms with kids at home want to seek treatment but can't make an inpatient program work and actually lion rock's average client is a 41 year old working mom like roughly 60 percent. so if you're struggling with a substance use problem and you fit that category you are not alone and there is a solution that can fit your life so guys if this is an area where you need help we think lion rock is a great place to start it's hard to take that first step but they make it really easy to get started you can schedule a free phone consultation take a quiz on their website or you can even live chat with one of their admission counselors just go to lionrockrecovery.com mom and they've got a special page they created just for our listeners once you're there everything's completely private and secure we don't know that you're going to that place, but they've set it up for you. Um, and you can just explore in a way that feels comfortable to you. Again, it's lionrockrecovery.com slash mom. All right. Shall we dig in? We have a lot to do. do. This oh is like, I'm like putting on my reading glasses, even though I don't wear them. That's how <laughs> I feel about this. <laughs> um, so I have a couple like kind of disclaimers or foundational thoughts that I feel like each, these could be an episode in themselves, but they just bear 
bear talking about for a minute. Yeah. And one is about safety and our fears around our kids' safety. And this, this is like a whole conversation. Yeah. But because a lot of the, the skills and the independence we're going to be talking about today is safety related, whether you're letting a kid stay home alone or walk to school by themselves to like whether you do that thing where you kind of hover underneath them on the playground structure like right. I have done before. Um, you know, we're worried about physical, you know, what we believe to be life and death safety issues for our kids. And that's obviously a primal and natural thing for moms. But I guess what I want to remind people, and I think Megan, you'll have good thoughts on this too, is like the the headlines we see in the news about awful things happening to children and families, those headlines are designed to get clicks. That's the way, yeah. that's the way media works. That's not my opinion. That is, that, that is, is how it works. That is how it yes. works. Um, and fear gets people to click on things. So well, I would never diminish and share things and share things and, yeah. and, and, and interact with them. Um, yep. And so I would never diminish those individual stories of true things that have happened. I want you guys to remember that you are a consumer of a, a media monster that wants you to be afraid about things mm -hmm. happening to your kids. And the other thing is safety information, like recalls and, you know, articles that get published about safety practices. They're all, a lot of them are well-intended. A lot of them are also about litigation and avoiding yep. being sued and all of that. And this is like a, that's a lot to take in. Now as moms, we're meant to be savvy consumers of this information that's designed to make us be afraid for our kids. Right. Yeah. So I want to just plant that seed. And I don't know if you have anything to add, but I just want to plant the seed before we start talking about this, because it's so, we sometimes don't even realize the fear that we're that's operating yeah. at like a base level when we make these decisions about our kids. Well, and also so much of it is also um, stems from like our upbringings and what we believed about safety growing up, what our parents instilled in us, what personal experiences we've had. Like I, you know, I've always been someone who's like, let my kids walk to school from the minute they can find their way there and right. like that kind of thing. And I know people who walk their kids right up to the door and for various reasons, but I know because from talking to them that some of them do that because they're afraid. Yeah. And I don't really feel like, I mean, it would be very easy for me to like, kind of look at that and go, okay, whatever. But I don't, I've never been in that mom's shoes. I don't know yep. what experience she had as a kid that scared her or what she knows about, you know, like what she's coming from. I don't know. So yeah. like it, it's, it's really difficult. Like wherever you are right now, I guess what I would say is just kind of like, look at the reality, the reality of the risk that mm -hmm. you think is there. Mm-hmm. And then I know we're going to get into this in a little bit later, yeah. but then what's the benefit? Like, what's the yes. benefit to letting go a little bit is, does your child learn something from that? Is there a risk in not letting go? Like yes. maybe there's an unintended consequence they've made. I was just reading an article um, that they've made playgrounds so safe mm -hmm. that they're not useful to kids anymore. Like kids don't want to play on them yeah. because they're boring. And so and they don't it's include like, some of those vestibular skills, right? Like spinning right. and like heights and things, things that they that need that to they, learn how yes. to navigate. Um, kids need to learn how to navigate risk so that when they become adults, they know how to navigate risk. And yeah. that's another thing. If they don't have a chance to listen to themselves and listen to their own guts and, and take in their environment and yeah. make a decision in their environment, that's their decision to make. They're not just going to magically know how to do that right. when they're on their own either. So there, there is the risk of right now. And then there's like the, the combined risk, the accumulative risk that mm -hmm. happens over a long time of kids not getting those experiences. Well, and what we kind of talked about last week was it, what's really hard as a mom is to see the gradual 
the gradual trajectory. Like we want our kids to go to college with good decision-making skills and coping skills and resilience, but like, you don't know, like, what does the curve look like? They're a helpless infant and then they're an adult. And like, where are the places where you let go? It's really hard. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah, just remember guys that the world, statistically speaking, the world is safer in most ways that, that we know of with children, car seats, SIDS, um, germs and communicable diseases. Like our world is so is safer than it's ever been. And yet we are sometimes operating with a fear that suggests like, you know, doom is around every corner. So I know some moms struggle with that more than others. And I'm with you. Like we, you know, um, but it's something kind of, I just wanted to plant that seed before we get into this. Um, And then the other one is that you touched on this perfectly at the beginning, Megan, which is we don't know each individual parent or family's reason for letting go more or, or controlling more. So when we're saying, when we're encouraging you guys to step back a little, I want to make sure you know that we're not saying like, it's not the same thing as like throwing your hands up and being like, well, they've got to learn to be an adult someday. So I'm just going to walk away. I actually think there's a lot of value in kind of being available and around Mm -hmm. for your kids and just waiting that extra step before um, jumping in. I think sometimes when you hear reactionary talk about helicopter parenting, we assume that it's like, well, I'm not going to ever help them navigate a sibling fight. I, I'm right. it's up to them. They've got to work it out. And I just don't think that either you or I are that extreme on that end either, which is why we're right. doing a two part episode about this. So, you know, <laughs> turns out we, we see a lot of shades. Lest of you think we advocate that, you know, you shut the door and let your baby cry all night or you never intervene yeah. in a sibling fight. Like, we're, no, we're advocating that you figure out where where the right spot is for you and your kid. Mm-hmm. And with that. I love this clip we got from Erica so much. She could not more perfectly set up um, what we're going to be talking about today. So she's going to tell us a little story about something her pediatrician said um, that just sums it all up. Hey, Megan and Sarah, this is Erica. I'm the mom to a almost five-year-old boy, and I've been listening to your show religiously since he was born. And so I have an infant, and as you mentioned in part one, There's not that much you can do as regard to free ranging, but my pediatrician said something that I thought was super interesting and a great metaphor for the way you're able to kind of implement a little bit more of a hands-off approach, even at the infant stage. So she said that when you're trying to help the baby learn how to sit, um, so you're, you're propping the baby up and he's wobbling and you go to catch him and she said, let him wobble for a moment. Because it's in that wobbling that it strengthens his core and then it gives him the power then to strengthen the muscles he needs to sit. And I think that's just such a great metaphor for um, letting go for maybe an extra second that makes you comfortable and um, letting that baby strengthen those muscles and practice. And uh, next time he'll be able to sit for maybe a second longer on his own. So. I think that it is possible from from the infancy to start working on it. Uh, thanks, guys. Love your show. Yeah, isn't that like a metaphor? It is for all of it because okay, so when a baby is sitting, the wo- the core strength that they need for sitting, yep, and the wobble looks yep. different than the wobble when they're seven and trying to learn how to ride a bike or whatever. Yes. Like, it's just, but it's, that's all it is. Like the, the wobble always strengthens them for the thing that they need to learn. And how often do we swoop in? 
before the wobble. It's just, yep. it, we just do it. Um, oh my gosh, I loved it. Sometimes we do it because it makes our lives easier too. And that's another thing like, yes. sometimes is the right thing in the moment uh, because you just need this to go well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. But like, you just build in those time, those opportunities. Yes, and, and just the constant reminder like that the wobble is necessary. The wobble is necessary. Like we are, right. we are, this, there's a long-term goal here. So Jess Leahy, who wrote the, bu- the book, The Gift of Failure that I've talked about, she calls this desirable difficulty. That's what I thought of when I thought about the baby wobble is there's a there's a point where a kid is struggling with something could be the baby to sitting up or all the way up through teenagers where they're struggling just enough, but not so much that they shut down. Like I, right. we've all had those kids who get so frustrated that they are a puddle of tears, the the rage takes over, or they yep. just emotionally shut down. And again, like we we're saying, this is a hard, this is what the place that you have to figure out when to step in. But I like that concept of desirable difficulty, because that's where the growth happens. That's where the abdominal muscles get strengthened or whatever. Yeah. So that's, a, I kind of liked having that term. I uh, really like that. Um, I want to add one, one thing to that is yeah. that sometimes a kid who melts down might not look like or shutting down might not look like shutting down. That might Mm. be something where you don't witness it happen, but like it shows up later in them being spacey or Mm -hmm. getting a bad grade on something they should have gotten a good grade. So it's not necessarily something you'll see with your eyes. Right. That you watch them. I think for me, when I was a kid, if something was too hard, I just kind of zoned out and would find something easier. Yeah. Or not try. Cause we also see kids who don't, who, who purposely don't put themselves in a position to try and fail. And that's can be a temperament thing or, whatever. But yeah, you're so right. It doesn't always look like the kid who's like trying to buckle his car seat on his own or whatever. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'll had one of those. Um, so way back when we started brainstorming this, we both wanted to have like, are there some questions we can ask ourselves when we're in a situation from baby to teen where you're almost like putting yourself in check? So I wrote down a few, Megan, but I think I just want to like dialogue about these for a sure. little bit. Um, the first question is whose need am I trying to meet? Am I trying to um, help my kid because they need help and they've asked for help? Or am I trying to, am I concerned about peer pressure or public parenting? Am I trying to yeah. get out the door faster? Right. Am I trying to make the teacher like me? Am I trying to, you know, avoid having my neighbor call the cops because I let my nine-year-old stay home alone? Yep. So I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer to that question because sometimes you do need to meet your own need. Like, yep. like we were saying. You got to get out the door sometimes, right? But at least, yeah, you got to get out the door. Sometimes it's not worth the struggle or the fight, but at right. least it's a good question to start with. Is this about my need or is this truly my kid needing help in this moment or is it about my need? So that was- And the- that kind of thing, like those kind of asking yourself those kinds of questions um, and these, all of these questions, what I like about that is when you get in the habit of doing that, it becomes reflexive to where like the first time you might have to stop and actually think about it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I'm so ingrained in thinking I'm helping my kid because I'm helping my kid, yeah. but maybe I'm helping myself. Yeah. Hmm, what does that look like? It might take a few minutes, but that after a while it becomes like so quick. Yeah. It's not like you, it becomes almost, you didn't even ask yourself the question. The answer was already in your yeah. head yes. before you had to even get there. I agree. I agree. Um, and of course we're not suggesting you don't meet your own needs. Just be, right. just um, be, Ask yourself. Yeah, just be clear. Whose need is this? Um, So the next question is, it's kind of, you know, a two-parter is what are the downsides to stepping in and what are the benefits to stepping back? So what, what is, what opportunities might we lose if, if I step in and what are the potential benefits of stepping back? I don't know if there's a specific thing that comes to mind. Again, I tend to think of 
the kids who are really struggling with something and they, they say they want help, they're frustrated, they're crying. And we are faced with like, is this something they can handle on their own? And what there's always, it's always an equation, right? Like, so yeah. Yeah. And for me, I think one where it kind of comes out has been um, squabbles between siblings Mm, or friends. I like a peaceful home. I don't like arguing. And like, I, I tend to make snap judgments Mm -hmm. about who's in the wrong and who's in the right. And all of those things can lead to me wanting to jump in on something I really don't need to jump in on. Um, And so like the downsides to stepping in, like the downside might be a, to be very selfish. Yeah. If I do it once, I have to do it every time. Like once I start doing that that and start breaking up sibling fights or like start solving their um, problems and their disagreements for them, they're just going to keep coming back to me over Mm -hmm. and over and over. And then the other downside to that is it becomes less and less fair because next time I might not even be within earshot. Yes. So I might be really unfairly, um, I guess, favoring one mm-hmm. kid over the other. And then there's, of course, the benefit is if I step back and don't jump in, then they get a chance to figure out how to work it out on mm-hmm. their own. And it doesn't, again, we're not talking about like a hair pulling um, squabble Dangerous. on the yeah. carpet where like, you know, it, it's not, it's not that extreme. It's like they're disagreeing because one of them has a toy that the other one wants or because they're playing and one of them won't follow the rules that the other ones, why I have no business being involved. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. What do I care or know or understand about the rules of a game? My kids just made Mm -hmm. up. Like I don't, I'm not even informed enough to have an opinion. Right. So my only option at that at state would be like, don't play then or separate them. And and then what have they missed out on? Right. Exactly. And what I love about what you said is it doesn't, you don't have to answer these questions the same way every time. Right. So the times that you intervene, you have your reasons. Um, but asking these questions can kind of just give you that second pause. And the other thing I was going to say is the benefits are often the long-term benefits. Yes. And you won't necessarily um, realize them immediately. And <laughs> they're the things that you're never going to see the, uh, the trajectory of those benefits yeah. if you don't sometimes step back and you sometimes witness that messy arguing or the struggle. It's compounding. It's, it's cumulative. And frankly, doing it this way is often more work. Yeah. Um, And it won't feel easier. No. In the moment. Yeah. Agreed. Unforge. Unforge. Unless you Um, go hide in your room and put in earplugs and I guess it might feel easier, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. But even that, like if you did that every time, I don't know. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So the the jumping off point from here that I like thinking about is, is there a potential for quote unquote, like safe failure or productive discomfort or desirable difficulty? Any of these phrases that mean like that sweet spot where there's some learning and growth that happens, but they're not in mortal danger. They're not mortified by their peers. We're putting them, yeah. we're letting them fail or struggle in a safe environment. And I think there's potential for those things like a million times a day at every age from baby on up. And if you get good at realizing like, oh, this is one of those moments. Like, I want you to just figure this out for yourself. You, it almost becomes fun. Like, okay, yeah, this is one of those times where I'm just not going to help you. Everything from, I think I talked like two years ago about, I finally started saying help yourself to my kids when they asked for a glass of water. Not that I wanted not to help them or that if I was serving a meal, I'm, I'm happy to pour everybody a glass of water, but it was the reflexive mom, can I have a glass of water? And I would go right to the cabinet. And I just right. switched one summer to saying, help yourself. And it was just like, that was such an easy switch. So um, the little ways that you can notice throughout the day for some kind of stretching those 
independent skills or struggling through something in a productive way, I think you get better and better at recognizing them. And then the big, like the big questions, like where it seems more fraught, you're still going to have to deal with those, but you've gotten good at identifying all these little ways that kids can go through that. Yeah. I think one place this can be really, really hard is school. Yeah. Because we put so much pressure on parents and kids. Um, We put so much emphasis on academic success. Um, And we really tend to overblow the impact of any one assignment or any one project or any one test, even starting very young Mm -hmm. to the point where like, even people who might be great about letting their kids like deal with a frustration, like, I don't know, can't get the Play-Doh out of the little, Mm -hmm. out of the little squeezy thing that the Play-Doh comes out of like, that same parent might have a really hard time stepping back and letting a kid get a bad grade on a project mm-hmm. because there's a teacher involved and you want to make the, te- the teacher happy or mm-hmm. you think it'll affect their like future success and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so that, I think sometimes that can be one of the hardest places to, it's also not your home, right? right. It's like some other environment that's foreign to you mm-hmm. and it's not your, it's not your sandbox. So you feel this need to kind of almost perform by ha- making them perform. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I guess I would just say like, use this, don't forget to use the same, uh, to ask the same questions and use the same, I yes. guess, formula or whatever, uh, when you apply to and apply it to situations outside of your home. Yes. As well. I agree. And also remember that, uh, most teachers, good teachers want kids to be gaining the same kind of skills and life skills in their classroom over the course of the year that you do at home. So they are, right. the teachers I have known are on board for the most part, with kids experiencing some academic discomfort. So rather than see it like, oh my gosh, this teacher is going to think I'm a terrible parent because I didn't, you know, help them stick to the science fair project deadlines. Um, right. Remember that those, the, the, the learning that's happening is preparing your kid to be better for the next teacher or to, you know, have that experience in their, in their arsenal. So yeah, I agree. It's hard. There's a lot more. There's a lot more. It seems there's a lot more at stake. Um, the last question is, and this is a good one, I think when your kids are really little and you are stepping in to intervene a lot on the playground and at home, if I step in this time, what skills can I start to teach now so that next time I'm needed less? Like, let's Mm -hmm. say you just have to step in because the friends are crying at the playground and they hurt their feelings. And this is not a time to let them work it out. Just tuck that away and think, okay, so what, what skills does this kid need or what things can we be talking about? And working on so that next time I'm needed a little bit less and the next time a little bit less. And again, I think that works from really little kids all the way up because we're going to step in and rescue. That's what we do. Um, But if we do it a little bit less each time or a little bit differently with an eye toward independence, then moving in the right direction, at least. To build on that, I just thought of a woman that I used to know um, back way back in my forum days. And she was probably one of the, like the most uh, like, extreme free rangey people that I knew it Mm -hmm. seemed, you know, Mm -hmm. like her kids were allowed to climb the bookshelves in her house and all this crazy (laughs) stuff. But I remember she had a rule and I really thought it was genius. And it was basically that she will never, she was never going to assist her kids getting themselves into a situation they couldn't get themselves out of. So for example, on the playground, she was never going to pick up her toddler and stick them up on the, you know how you, it's easy to do that, right? You pick up your two-year-old, you stick them up on the highest, Mm -hmm on the highest platform so that they don't have to painstakingly slowly Mm -hmm. figure out how to get up there themselves. But then she was like, no, because that two-year-old probably has no business being up there in the first place. If they can't get themselves up there, the playground structure, especially the way they're made now, they are made to be like 
yes, they have ones for two, two to five-year-old kids and ones for older kids. But like a seven-year-old kid probably isn't interested in the one yeah. that's for two to five-year-old yeah. kids. Mm-hmm. And a two-year-old probably can't get on the thing that's yeah. on a seven-year-old one if you leave them alone. Right. If we start intervening to help, and I'm not talking about helping getting them out of a situation. I mean, getting them into yes, it. We've yes. already put them in a situation that they can't manage on their own. Well, well think and of like the length why? of the fall, right? Like if right. a two-year-old is climbing up the stairs at their the little kid playground and they fall, it's going to hurt. But if you've put them on the highest, like the thing right. that's like a, a whole story in the air, that's a different fall. And they didn't get themselves there. I like that. I they really didn't. Like and that. then you have to hover. Yeah. There's no yeah. choice. Like, because you know, if they fall, they're going to. Right. You know, break their head open. Right. So, yeah. Right. I just like that philosophy. I like that. That is really good. Um, okay. So we thought what we do is throw out some specific scenarios that have either come up in our lives or sent to us by listeners or just really common ones through the ages and just kind of workshop this a little bit. We don't have to answer each of those questions every time, but the questions are just kind of the foundation. So I'm going to start, Megan, with um, a baby trying or baby or young toddler trying really hard to do something and getting super frustrated, or maybe they're not frustrated, but they are making a giant mess and making you crazy. So have you ever had like a nine month old who wants to feed themselves with a spoon, I for mean, example? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> or, you know, they want to brush their teeth on their own or they, and sometimes it's that they can't and they're frustrated. And other times it's that they would like to just keep trying. Right. Um, and it's inconvenient for you in some way. It's making a big mess or making you crazy um so a couple of just things I thought of um is not to remove all we get really good at removing potential challenges for babies and toddlers to avoid those meltdowns and to some extent I think that's really good parenting right you're sort of like doing that thing where you're like oh he's gonna bump his head on this like oh I'm gonna take that glass of milk so that it doesn't spill and like you you talked about that like your hands are moving like you're just like and you're not even thinking right your hands are just like separated from your body like you know and they're so fast like you get so fast and like wily in those moments right right so I guess um leaving opportunities for baby, remembering that babies exploring is how they learn, right? Flashcards yeah. is not how they learn. Like videos is not how they learn. They, they learn by using their hands and their mouths. So making sure that you're sort of like having some time throughout the day that, that they are exploring their world in a way where they can figure out if the round pegs fits in the square hole. And if yeah. it doesn't seeing how they do with that reaction. So I don't know. I think it's, we're training ourselves at this stage to watch. We talked about, um, what was that phrase from last week? Non-anxious observation, right? Just watch, watch their reaction. I've had kids who get way frustrated, way quicker and others who just kind of lose interest and move on just personality thing. Um, and then I think start to start to recognize the frustrated feelings without stepping into rescue every time, like probably just change activities. Like if it's going to be that frustrating, then maybe we do something else. I remember, I remember doing something and I I had to really think back like to the baby stage. It's been so long, but I kind of remember having a way that I would like help a little bit, but not remove all the obstacles. Like I have Mm -hmm. this very clear memory of sitting by a newly, like a newly sitting up baby Mm -hmm who could kind of reach around them, but wasn't really mobile yet. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to reach the toy and they can't Mm -hmm. get it. And they're getting really frustrated and just like shoving it like an inch closer Mm -hmm. and just see what they do with that. Can they get it now? Like, I know they can't crawl yet. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't want to be like, get it yourself, baby. But at the same time, yeah, often if I just shoved yeah. a bit closer, they had they were able to develop the strength and the the coordination to get it. Yeah, you know? or I love like, that. 
um, when they're trying to get the, the shape and they're putting it in the yeah. wrong thing, sometimes if you just show them to flip it, yeah, you don't have to put it in, yeah, but just show them that they're, they're pounding it in the wrong way. So if they just turn it a little bit, they can do it. And, and that's kind of fun because you feel like you're doing a little bit of something yeah. and you're not just watching them suffer. But they get to do it by themselves. Well, like they and, get that satisfaction. And you can be sneaky, which it sounds like right. you were, where they don't, you're not saying, here, baby, let me help you with that. Right. You, you literally are just manipulating the environment a tiny bit to where it's desirable right. difficulty instead of like futile Baby's effort. losing yes. his mind. Right. Yeah. Yes. No, I really like that. I really like that. And I think there's a million ways moms can do that um, and probably do without even realizing it. That's um, probably, you know, and that's the funny thing. I bet we're all kind of like in the baby phase. Mm -hmm. We're all kind of, negotiating every situation without realizing we're doing it. Yeah. 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 But I, I'm always a fan of bringing awareness to something. And then you're like, oh, I do do oh, that. Or like, look at my parenting. <laughs> maybe I could it's do that than differently. I <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So what about toddlers grabbing and, uh, you know, negotiating toys or any kind of a toddler? This happens a lot in play groups where you're like yes. swooping in because you don't want the other moms to judge you. Or right. maybe your kid is a biter or a hair puller. Um, and so sometimes we have to swoop in, but I think the notes that I made is wait a teeny bit longer to respond than you feel comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean that you look away and don't respond at all, but wait just a beat longer than you're, than you'd like to for your own, uh, like, you know, peer pressure and like yeah. everyone's watching you. Um, if the, sometimes if the other kid cries or grabs back, like watch their reactions. Sometimes toddlers will do that. They'll have a moment of kind of explosive emotion, and then they'll move on. One will wander right. away. Um, and I know when you read about emotional learning for kids, it's way more important that they recognize that their action caused a reaction in somebody else. Like, mm -hmm. so when we swoop in and say, don't do that, say you're sorry, before they've even seen that the other kid was affected by that because also right. sometimes they're not like sometimes right. they can grab a toy and the, and the other kid doesn't care. So I think when we hold ourselves back just a minute, I'm not saying don't intervene. I'm saying maybe wait just a second longer. You watch and you watch for all of those things that are happening and back to like what, what's to be gained by stepping back. There's a lot, I think of emotional learning to be gained by just watching to see how they handle it. So, and uh, you can also tell a lot about yourself in those situations. If you pay attention, like, mm -hmm. are you the one who, automatically assumes your kid's in the wrong because mm. you're ju that's just your personality mm -hmm. and you want to make everyone happy? Or are you more likely to feel like your kid is getting wronged? Like, I just think you, everything gets colored, especially when we're looking at toddlers who mm -hmm. it's not like they don't, they don't really, they're not premeditating any of this. Right. So like, <laughs> they're just little balls of reaction and then we're reacting to them. And sometimes it's really more about us or yeah. like our personalities than it is about them at all. So just being aware of that, I think could be really helpful. I would say one of the most common uh, like listener struggles that we get with the ones that come up over and over again is this, when you start having social gatherings that include multiple kids, like this mismatch of expectations in how much are we going to get involved when our kids start to squabble. And especially if you have like a play group where the babies were all lined up immobile on the blankets and you got to like have coffee with your girlfriends and then that grows into the play group where they're all like 18 months old. Right. It's not fun. Like no, it is no not. longer fun. Um, but I think the more as moms, we can just acknowledge like, Hey, Violet is really going through a hair pulling phase right now. I'm going to do my best to make sure that doesn't happen, but here's how I'm dealing with it. And I'm not, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about it. Like nobody's kid, nobody's toddler behaves with social graces at a gathering. And so 
I think it creates this environment where we are swooping in as soon as possible to save face with our friends when, I don't know, like I just, I wish for yeah. that magic wand that would level the playing field. So everybody could say like, yep, my kid's going to screw up. Your kid's going to screw up. Like we'll still be friends when they're in kindergarten. And, and I will also say, and this may just be my purely um, selfish perspective on this, but that was the age, like toddler age was where I really started to see a lot more value in, in small multi-age groups of mm-hmm. kids getting together than yes. cramming a bunch of toddlers together yes. because it's just, it, it stops being fun for anybody. Yes. And also it's not real life. Like yeah. mm-hmm. you're not like throwing, and even in a daycare, first of all, daycare, you're not there and you don't right. have to do it. And also there's like teachers who are paid to be there to yeah. deal with this stuff and like the school rules and everything all play in when it's you and a bunch of your friends and you're trying to enjoy each other's company, but people are in a different space mm-hmm. and all the kids are like in that same exact place of being unreasonable as toddlers yes. are. <laughs> Sometimes it's just not worth doing for a yeah. while. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah. And you might be better off hanging out with like one other family who has like a baby in a preschooler yeah. where the kids are around each other and seeing each other be kids, but they're not all in that same place at once. There is nothing more comforting than hanging with a family where you know your kids can fight like siblings yes. with each other and no one will be offended. I mean, you have yeah. that because you've got like um, cousins and, but I never yeah. had the cousin thing. So there's a handful of families where our kids can get in knockdown drag out fights, just like siblings. And the parents can be cheersing in the other room or one mom can step in, even if it involves kids that aren't her own. It's just a really, yeah. it's, it's hard to find, but it's great when you can find it. And baby playgroups don't always grow to that. No, sometimes they do or one family yeah. might, but yeah. I want to say whether one other way we sometimes intervene with toddlers besides just swooping in and breaking up a fight. Sometimes we intervene because we think we're supposed we think they're more capable of um empathy and apologies right. than they really are. So yeah. then we do this thing where we're overly like we don't take toys. We we don't use our hands for hitting. Please say you're sorry. Let's go have a time out. And that's totally cool. Like if that is working for you, that is totally cool, but um, I think sometimes we do that as like, it feels like then we've made amends for whatever yes. happened when just remember that, um, socially, emotionally, to- most toddlers aren't there yet. And you've got plenty of time to work on those skills. Um, it's probably more your need than theirs. So it's one yep. of those places to realize like who's, whose need is this? Um, and, and is it necessary or is it just trust yeah. that there will be a time for that? The 18 to 24 month crowd is probably not there yet. And that's like, I think the thing that's it, that you need to keep in mind there is that if your goal is to teach um, a behavior or an etiquette around something that might be effective, but you're not going to teach empathy to a toddler that way. Like, right. That, like that won't do it. Right. That comes later yep. through watching people be empathetic to each other yep. and, and then developing the skills and ability and yep. like, frankly, like just aging out of this really <laughs> aging out of they, crazy. They age out of this, like sort yeah. of just this phase of being completely self-centered. And just like we said, part of what builds empathy is seeing what your actions, uh, what, what reactions they create in other people, which again, mm-hmm. goes back to, if you swoop in too quickly, they don't yeah. even realize they made somebody cry or hurt their feelings because we've prevented it from happening. One of the, um, strategies I like for toddlers in that situation. And also, um, this could also work for kids of any age that are like just still learning kind of empathy. It's like, you don't have to force your kid to apologize or to really even understand what they did, but you can go make a fuss over the kid that they hurt and say, I'm so sorry you were hurt. And then you're kind of do, you are making amends in a way you are empathizing with this kid. Your kid, your kid is seeing it happen. 
even though and right you're now genuinely just, sorry that that kid yeah, got punched in the face sorry. by your right. toddler and your kid might look like just a sack of wood like watching and maybe in some place in their brain it's firing up right that right. they're getting something from it but I feel like then you've done your due diligence yep I without having to force your kid into that's doing something. always been my approach and the other thing it does is it does not give your aggressor toddler any additional attention because some kids kind of feed off the negative attention, not all kids, but it puts the attention where it's needed, which is the, the wronged party. Um, and you're not forcing an apology, but you're giving a genuine one yourself. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, we're going to take a sponsor break and get right back into this, but we are excited about our new sponsor today. Why don't you set it up? I know. Well, Sarah, I have to ask you (laughs) and be honest. Did you do baby books for your babies? So I always wanted to, but yep. then real life took over and also things were kind of becoming more digital. And all I have is like a big bin of stuff that would go in a baby book that I never did anything about. So we are kicking off a brand new partnership with our sponsor, Keepsake. It's Keepsake with a Q and no U. So like Q-E-E-P. And the Q is for questions because they ask you questions about your kids. This is the easiest way to capture little moments and memories about your kids and then turn them into a beautiful book the baby book I never made um, with a single click. Yeah. And you know what I also love about this is that a lot of the questions that they ask aren't things that would have been in a typical baby book anyway. So you're really getting more of that sort of like little snippets of moments. Um, You guys might have seen their ads on Instagram and Facebook. The service is totally free. So here's how it works. Keepsake texts you question prompts and then you reply right from your phone. So like you have your phone on you anyway, right? So you just have your phone and they text you. You text back and then it saves those answers in an online journal that you can edit any time. In addition to the prompts, which I think is probably what would help me remember to use it the most. Yeah. If only I'd have someone following me around, yeah. reminding me to put stuff in the baby book. That would have been nice back then. Um, but you can also text keepsake anytime you want. So if you've got a funny story or a photo and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to put this in the book. You can just do it right there on your phone and it'll add it to your journal. We always have our phones within reach. So it just makes it so easy and it gets you in the habit of recording those memories. And then when you're ready to print your book, they make it super easy. So I am in love with the question prompt idea and I have been using it. And the other day, Keepsake asked me what Violet could not live without. And of course, it's her lovies, which she calls her night nights. Still at age six, she could not live without them. And it was so easy just to reply back and save that little detail, which now is an every minute part of my life. But in 10 years, it won't be. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, we talk a lot about kind of removing that guilt associated with all those shoulds of motherhood, including I should have done a baby book and now (laughs) my kid's in a kindergarten, but it's never too late to start. I love that Keepsake is designed for newborns through school-aged kids and the questions are different for each age group. So you can start preserving those memories now, whatever age your kids are, and then just lose the guilt. Should I also lose the big bin of stuff for baby books? You might want to do that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so wait till you hear this offer, guys. The service is free at the basic level, so you can get it right now. And there's also a cool app that goes with it and even a premium subscription if you love it and want more features. But if you sign up at our special page, it's keepsake.co slash the mom hour, you're going to get $20 toward the purchase of your first keepsake book when you have enough content, you're ready to print that great book. So again, we're going to review the spelling here because it is keepsake with a Q and no U. Q-E-E-P-S-A-K-E dot co, not dot com, slash the mom hour for $20 toward your first book. Okay, such a great idea. Well, we're also welcoming back our sponsor, UCI's Division of Continuing Education. We have a lot of moms in our community who are looking to make career changes or get back in the workforce after some time at home with little ones. So we're really excited to tell you guys about the University of California, Irvine's Division of Continuing Education. 
We love that this program makes it possible for moms to further their education in a way that works for their families. A ton of UCI's continuing education programs actually happen online, so they're flexible, but they still offer a real immersive online classroom experience where you get to collaborate with your peers and learn from expert instructors with industry experience. Yeah, they have certificate programs and specialized studies programs available, everything from business, IT, healthcare, finance, law, and you can advance your career in as little as six months. And the fact that a lot of the courses are online, just like you said, make it possible to learn these skills and advance your career from wherever you live. Spring quarter is coming up and registration is open. Visit ce.uci.edu slash podcast and enter the promo code podcast for 15% off one course. This offer is only valid till March 31st, and there are some exceptions, so check out the details on their site. Again, it's ce.uci.edu slash podcast, and enter the promo code podcast to get 15% off one course. All right. Okay. We are going so, to... Jumping back in, huh? Jumping back in. All right. We're workshopping. Okay. We're workshopping. So this is a cool one, I think, because it involves more social dynamics, emotional, social, as kids spend more time away from you. So yeah. preschooler or kindergartner comes home and says, my teacher hates me. She yells at me all the time or nobody plays with me on the playground. Yeah. So Megan, what do you do? Well, <laughs> mm -hmm. I want to just start here. Um... And I think I've talked about this on the show before, but your kid's perception of what's happening at school, just to put this out there first, mm -hmm. is probably only about 40% correct. That's generous. <laughs> That's generous. I would say at a preschool level, it's probably more like 15%. So yeah. um, just, just before you do anything at all, I don't want to say don't believe your kid. I would just say just take everything they say with an enormous grain of salt. <laughs> the, I had the biggest of salt the biggest grains. possible grain of salt. I, I remember um, my kid, uh, Isaac, telling me in preschool that he had no friends. Everyone hated him. And then witnessing as kids went into like spasms of joy when he walked into the classroom. <laughs> and like he didn't know any of their names. They all knew him. It was the weirdest thing. But yeah. like his idea of what his place was in the classroom was so different than reality that mm -hmm. ever since then, I've just been like, okay. So <laughs> yeah, I guess like the first thing to do is listen and don't really re react. Agreed. I, I think you can say, oh, that sounds hard. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. Tell me and more. See what yeah. they say. But like, I don't think that you need to actually do anything in the, in the beginning. Now, if it goes on and on and on and they're depressed and like, it's becoming a problem. They don't want to go to school then maybe it's something that needs to be addressed. But right. Often these are like, this is a kid who just had a bad day. Yep. Okay. I have so, so many yeps to what you said. Uh, my constant refrain is tell me more. And then when they mm -hmm. stop talking, tell me more, tell me more about that. Um, and then you can say things like, what's your plan? What's your plan for tomorrow? You can also say things like, how can I help? Um, mm -hmm. Because you're not trying to be unavailable, um, but you, it is worth getting your kids input on how you can help because a lot of kids do not want you marching down to the school right. or calling the person's mother or talking to the teacher. And even a kid as young as four or five, that might stop them in their tracks a little, but it's worth right. asking, how can I help? Do you need some extra snuggles tonight? Would you like to, would you like me to help you, you know, write about it in your journal? There's a, yeah. there's a million things you can do, but you could ask them, how can I help? Um, when it does come to that point where you feel like it's worth exploring. And we have a lot of episodes about this, about like parent teacher communication and yeah. stuff like that. But um, like you said, the, the giant grain of salt that you have been taking this information with is super important when you do decide to contact the teacher or the school. And it can be as simple as 
you know, Violet is having some trouble. She's been upset and not wanting to go to school. I would love the chance to meet with you to see if we can figure out what's going on. I would, Mm -hmm. I would probably not even say what my kid said in the initial email because that can put people on the defensive right away. You're saying Violet said this, and then it becomes about what happened or and didn't happen. And they have happen. to like, right, yeah, exactly. Right. As opposed to, you know, Violet's really been having trouble and I'd love to chat with you. And then, you know, hopefully most teachers are, are you know, open to that, but taking that very exploratory approach rather than let's get involved and fix this. And I think it's when it's your first kid, it's really hard. There's nothing yeah. worse than your kid telling you something awful is happening at school. So this one just takes practice, I think. Yeah. I agree. And, you know, if it was an older kid, um, it's sometimes teachers and kids just clash for whatever reason it happens. I've take I've done both ways with older kids. I've said things like, well, you know, this is an opportunity for you to learn how to like be around people and have to deal with people that you don't always get along with. And with a preschooler, I think it might be like if it got to that point where we're like now a month down the road and it's not getting better and the teacher doesn't seem to be, you know, open to changing right. things or whatever. Um, I could see where you might want to start becoming more proactive, but I think again, we're like letting them wobble a little yes. bit. Yes. And we're like, we're like, we're waiting a beat longer than we think yes. we need to before we jump in. Yep. We can still jump in at some point if it becomes necessary. We're not saying don't ever do that. Yep. It just maybe right now is not the moment. Yep. I totally agree. Okay. So we're moving on up age-wise, and we're also kind of returning to this idea of we think we'd like to be hands-off, and we've decided that's what's best for us and our kids, but what about the other parents? What will they think? So Rosalind emailed us, and I'll just read it. She put it very nicely. She said, I believe in this strategy for the long term, but my question is, how do you deal with the fallout in the short term? When your child compares the project she did herself to the one her classmate's parent probably pretty much did, but she doesn't realize that her friend had so much help. It's hard to see her pride in her own effort dissolve in the face of what you know to be an apples to oranges comparison, but you also don't want to criticize other parents. Have either of you dealt with these sorts of issues? Is there anything I should do or should I just trust that one day she'll be in her dorm setting her own darn thermostat and it'll all be okay? That is a reference to (laughs) what we talked about last week. Yeah. Do you want to start with this one? Well, this is hard because, you know, you can ask leading questions and hope that your kid puts two and two together. (laughs) But they might not. Okay, so for example, you could say, "Well, describe your child, your friend's um, project." She describes it. It's like, a, you know, a castle made out of chocolate squares yeah. or something, right? <laughs> wow, how do you think she did that all by herself? I mean, if you put it that way, and the kid is kind of savvy and puts two and two together, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to say the thing yeah. for them to draw the conclusion. But that's not fool. It's not no. foolproof. Yeah, it's not fail safe, and it's hard to do that without sounding judgy sometimes. So right. it's like. You know, it's kind of like when I've heard, I've heard a lot of, um, this comes up a lot in like books and blogs about divorce okay, and like how to deal with, and it's, it's a different topic, but I think it's kind of the same Mm -hmm. how to deal with like, if the other parent isn't doing the things that they need to do, like Mm -hmm. if the other parent isn't following through on their promises, if the other parent isn't, um, they're on time when they're supposed to be blah, blah, blah. And the advice always is kids will figure it out. Mm Mm-hmm. They won't do it right away. And you saying something isn't going to help anything. Mm-hmm. So I think that you can say, oh, wow, like that sounds like such a great project. Like that, that would have been really hard for you to do mm-hmm. on your own, blah, blah, blah. And 
and leave it there. Yeah. And they're probably not going to get it right away. Yeah. Well, and I think you can also add questions like, what did you really like about that project? Um, yeah. Sometimes there might be something that they, you know, maybe had really good glitter letters on the poster board right. and you didn't take them to Staples last time. Well, maybe, maybe that is something you're willing to help with, but helping right. your kids see what would you like to do differently on the next product project. This is so hard because some kids care and some kids do not. Um, yeah. I have kids who do very phoned in poster boards and do not care that the one next to theirs looks amazing. So that's probably not going to be their learning moment for, you know, effort in product out. Like that's just, they're going to learn it somewhere in some place that they care more about. Um, But if they do care, if your kid is looking at the next project kind of wistfully, I think it's an opportunity to be like, yeah, what would you like to do differently next time? Oh, you'd like to have more 3d elements. Well, how can I help you with that? Cause you're not yeah. trying to be unavailable, but you're sure not going to do the project for them, but at least you're helping them articulate what they like. And then, like you said, they're going to, they're going to figure it out. I also yeah. think this is a chance where my favorite phrase in our family, we, where there's like arbitrary mm-hmm. things that in mm-hmm. our family we do or don't do. And you don't have to say it with judgment, but you know, in our family, we, you know, set a supplies budget for your project. I will be available, um, you know, to consult, but in our family, the school projects are yours to do on your own. And you can start saying things like that at the very beginning and you can decide how much you kind of bend the rules. It's all arbitrary. I love that in our family. We, yes. And that can also, that's one of those sayings that like, you have to say it like you mean it. Like, yeah, you don't have to in our family. Yeah. No, no. Like, (laughs) no, I know. But like that could be misinterpreted. Right. But like, yeah, in our family, like very nonchalant, like in our family, we do this. Yeah. Not all families do that. Right. End of story. Um, I did love that your your comment about the glitter letters, because I have to say, as a kid, I had I was never able to master um, bubble letters. Uh-huh. So I always felt bad about my posters like they uh-huh. never I never liked the way they looked. And so one place I've like been really good as a parent is always having those darn glitter letters. Having them on hand. I wish I had had glitter letters growing up. I didn't even know they existed. They might not have in the 80s. Yeah, but I like, don't think they did. I don't remember them. I remember... Yeah, I just did hand lettering on everything. I was terrible at hand yeah. lettering. So my posters always looked really crappy. Like they would start with huge letters and then they'd yeah. shrink. Yeah. And they'd be all like askew. And yeah. they'd like, I would never fill the space correctly. And so, yeah, glitter we letters do, solve a lot. We do a lot of um, project-based stuff at our elementary school. There's mm-hmm. big semester projects for every kid and they do them in groups. And so there's a lot of good that comes with that. And there's also a lot of drama and frustration. And I, yeah. I believe it's kind of worth it in the end. They are learning skills, but nothing makes me happier than to walk around when they have these exhibitions and see 80% of the projects, you can tell the kids did them. Nothing is cuter than a second grade project when the second grader did it. Like, so I think if you, like in Rosalind's email, if you are faced with that kind of apples to oranges scenario, just, you know, remember that there's something to be proud of for doing it the old fashioned way and not doing it for your kid. And in the moment, again, it's short term and long term. So yeah, it's hard. Okay, Sarah. As we knew would happen, we are running short on time because we have a lot to say about this stuff. And I definitely want to circle around to this question that we got, um, well, not even really a question, but a comment that we got from a listener named Kara, who was telling us about this service, and I'm putting that in air quotes, <laughs> yeah. offered by the school. And now all schools have some version of it. In her case, it's called Infinite Campus. It sounds like um, very like uh, futuristic. It sounds society. awful. It's very ominous. Yes, <laughs> yes, it sounds like 1984 yeah. like, by George Orwell. Like, yeah. Okay. So basically, the idea is, and it's called something else in my school, and I'm sure everybody who has middle or high school kids knows what I'm talking about. But it's like a, it's like an online 
portal where you can log in and at any moment in real time, see your kid's grade, what assignments they've turned in, what assignments they haven't turned in, um, with their test scores, everything. Now, I and, and Kara said, like, it's very hard not to check it. And mm-hmm. she was checking it all the time. And it led to some really, like, bad dynamics between her and her daughter. Mm-hmm. Who was eighth grade, I believe. Eighth grade. Yeah. Um, I, I mean... I think this is like the problem du jour, right? Yes. Like I have several friends who are teachers and they say that the services make their jobs so much harder because parents are freaking out, but the information that they have isn't complete. And right. you start obsessing, like your whole relationship with your kid becomes about, did you get this done? Did you get that yeah. done? Um, I have definitely fallen down that rabbit hole. Now I only use it when like I have a kid who's struggling and mm-hmm. we're in some kind of like holding pattern where it's like, I'm watching this closely just so you know. And mm-hmm. even then I have to remind myself like this is not accurate necessarily. This is right. This is how much the teachers updated it. But right. that test might score might be something he could swap out. So I have to watch myself to not um, make assumptions about what I'm seeing. Right. And only use it as one piece of information, not like the whole picture. Right. Um, and I think most teachers I know are totally cool if parents literally never look at those things. Oh, I think because they would rather. Yeah, it's better. They would rather they would rather negotiate these things with the kids directly and like have parents have an accurate idea about when the kid's in trouble, which isn't, this isn't going to show you that necessarily. Um, so I don't know, Sarah, do you have an opinion? Like, I know you heard a lot about it. Yeah, I have. And in the books that I love to talk about, so I just read how to raise an adult um, who, and Julie Lithcott Hames gave an example of a parent knowing that a kid had failed a test before the kid even knew yeah. and got oh. home, he got home and she laid into him and he hadn't even, he didn't even know that he'd failed it yet. Right. I think what, at least what the reading that I have done is how much of the relationship, and this is what Kara was speaking to as well, you know, teen parent relationships are already pretty fraught Mm -hmm. and to have something that's outside of your your interpersonal relationship this sort of like nebulous portal information be the cause of a lot of strain is can be really it can be not in every case but it can be really unhealthy and I think that's what Kara experienced um it's it's also kind of I think robs the kids of like you said that ability to get a grade not be happy with it go home, you know, maybe yeah. talk about it, maybe pout about it, maybe take action, maybe not. Um, but just like the toddlers, just like the intervening before the toddlers have had a chance to even realize the implications of what has happened, we're already there give, either giving them advice yeah. or, you know, maybe pushing co- consequences down or whatever yeah. we're doing um, before they've even had, they haven't even had time to process how they feel about it. Maybe they care, maybe they don't. Um, So yeah, most of, I guess my, because my kids aren't quite there yet, it's just more of the things that I've read and hearing, you know, people like you talk and, but Kara shared that she had to like almost go cold Turkey, like stop Mm -hmm. checking the portal um, to kind of repair this relationship with her teenager. So I thought it was a very interesting story. Well, and the other thing I will say is, you know, not only it's not like your relationship isn't about school, like your relationship with your child should be about more than their academic success. Right. But also their academics aren't really your jurisdiction. Right. And that's something like we have to be good at as parents. Like if we send our kids into a school we are trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can't trust that school, we need to think about that. But mm-hmm. like, like we need to know that like the teacher is in charge of their classroom. Ultimately, it's the teacher's job mm-hmm. to do all this. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved. Of course, we do need to be involved and we need to have some idea of what's going on. But like 
it's almost like we're micromanaging not just our kid, but the teacher too, mm-hmm. because it becomes very easy to start being like, why isn't this grade yep. book updated yet? Oh I expected gosh. to see that yeah. test grade yesterday. Um, the other thing I will say is, you know, for every 10 teachers that would really prefer that parents don't look because they will communicate with you mm-hmm. if something's wrong and they'd rather have it go that way. There's always the one who will almost give you attitude because like, there's a something that your kid missed and you don't know. Oh my gosh. Cause you're not looking at it. It happens. Yeah. Um, I think what I've tried to kind of tell myself as my kids have moved into middle and high school, where they have many teachers and it's not like this close relationship with one person is that all I can control is my family life mm-hmm. and my values for my kids. Mm-hmm. And I can't change my parenting style to meet, to meet like every single teacher's expectations. Like that, first of all, I'm not going to mesh with every teacher, just like my kid's not going to mesh right. with every teacher, but I also can't change to meet teacher's right. expectations. Like it's impossible to do that. And also very disorienting. Mm-hmm. And also I think it's confusing to kids mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because if you feel the only time you cave and like start paying mm-hmm. attention is because the teacher's pressuring <laughs> you to like, what does that yeah. tell them about what you think is your, you know, your value in your home? Yeah. Um, so I think all of these things, like when we talk about the nuances and pretty much everything we talk about, Sarah, mm-hmm. that has to do with discipline and kids and chores and all that, it's always like, what is the thing that you have decided is the right thing for you and your family? Yep. And it all starts from there. And when, as kids get older, um, you know, if they want to get a job, say, or they want to do a sport, like I know families where um, schoolwork is always the most important thing. And so they discourage after school jobs. We have a slightly different approach. Like I always kind of take the approach where I believe you can do whatever you say you're going to do till you prove me wrong. So mm-hmm. if, if a kid thinks they can juggle a job, a sport and their grades, I believe them. And then if they can't, then we have to kind of have a conversation about priorities. But that's my family. That, that's my household. Mm-hmm. And someone else might have a very different way of looking at that. And I think it's informed by your upbringing, like what's important to you. Mm-hmm. Like it's important. It's informed by so many things that nobody else can judge or determine for you. Yeah. And I'm reminded of last week's conversation when we talked about how the assumption that a four-year a high pressure for your university situation is everybody's end goal right. and that how far that trickles back. I mean, all the way into fourth, fifth, sixth grade expectations yeah. about homework or tutoring or enrichment programs um, or school choice. And that the unfortunate part of that being this kind of widespread assumption in a lot of communities is that it robs us of the, of the, ability to see what our kid really wants to do. And I don't mean that, I don't mean you should have no academic expectations for your kid. Again, that's up to you and your family to decide whether they need to maintain a, you know, a grade point average or, you know, what the expectation is. But, but I almost feel like a lot of communities and families are operating under this. Everybody's goal is to get into an elite four-year school. And then, then we, we adjust our rules and expectations backward from there without ever saying, wait, is that what I want for every one of my kids? Right. Exactly. (laughs) When you hear something so often held up as the thing we should all be worried about, you sometimes don't even know if you actually care about that thing. Like you assume you do, you're, you're operating under the assumption that this is your value, but Mm -hmm. is it? Right. You've taken the time to think about it. Like I think it's so easy to get caught up in what, you know, it feels like everybody else is doing or thinking and, and it's often not true. And it's, it's very hard sometimes, unless you kind of have a little bit of scrutiny to realize that those things are actually impacting choices and pervasive attitudes about stuff all the way down. I'm talking yep. to preschool level. So yep. even if you haven't even thought about 
college for your kids. It is amazing that this these kind of sweeping assumptions we make can can I don't know just just it impacts everything. It impacts everything. So I guess just just think about it. Just think about it, guys. That's all I have to say about that. Yep. <laughs> um, well, we have gone on and on Way long I about know. this. Um, so we are going to wrap up. I know you guys are going to have more to say. So while wow, we'll probably not do a part three next week, it's definitely a topic we could revisit in the future. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, you can email us at hello at themomhour.com. You can also send us a voice message. We'll link up in the show notes how to do that. But you heard some of our community's voices in this episode, and we love to do that whenever we can. So thanks to those of us. And we couldn't include everybody who sent them in this time, but keep those coming as well. All right, Megan, off to uh, not helicopter our kids. <laughs> Something like as that. As best as we can. As best as we can. All right. Bye, All guys. Right, talk to you guys soon. Hi, ladies. I so enjoyed the episode and just got a chance to finish listening to it today. I did want to speak to my experience with um, a child who been growing up a bit asynchronously. So from a very, very early age was extremely verbally and mentally precocious um, and uh, mature in many ways, especially mentally, you know, I, I guess in those sort of traditional ways we look for development. Um, and it was very important to me to encourage independence and self-assurance. So um, I didn't recognize when this child was very young. I didn't recognize that their emotional, uh, their emotional intelligence was not developing at the same speed as, well, I mean, I noticed, <laughs> but I didn't think about how it would affect um, interpersonal um, interactions. And so when they were very young, I think I did not offer the support that I wish I had. Um, especially in relationship issues. Um, and there were times when there was some, you know, potential bullying that I tried to stay out of and um, try to equip the child to deal with on their own. And they just weren't ready. And I really, that's something I regret. So, you know, of course we always... <laughs> We always do our best as moms and, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But um, I guess I just wanted to speak to that with children maybe who are twice exceptional. So gifted kids who maybe um, are not as gifted in other areas. Just a word of caution to um, be ready to fill in the gaps for them and not expect them to be able to handle all circumstances um, that we sort of assume because they're like ahead in other areas that they'll be able to deal with on their own. So anyway, that was just sort of my experience. I know that wasn't one of your regular questions. Um, and this is sort of a long rambly, long rambly statement that it might be something to, to think through or address just children who, um, who are developing at different stages just to encourage moms to be sensitive to that. Hi, my name is Lizzie and I'm from the Chicago area. Thank you so much for your show. I find it encouraging and stimulating and I always look forward to new episodes. Um, I just wanted to respond to your recent helicopter parenting episode that really resonated. Um, and I had a couple thoughts. 
I have three young girls. Um, They're five and a half, three and almost one. And while a helicopter style has never been my tendency, I have noticed definitely that I have relaxed overall as a parent as time goes on. I think the key is trust, trusting that my daughters are resilient, trusting that they are fine just as they are, whatever that looks like developmentally or emotionally, and trusting that the boundaries and intentions we have set as parents are sound. When I am confident in these things, then I am able to enter into that type of non-anxious observation that you discussed. Also, when I am meeting my own needs and trusting myself, um, that is being confident in my own judgment as a parent, it is much easier for me to relax. Um, A tangible experience of this for me is with food. When my first was a toddler, I remember being worried all the time about what she was eating, how she was eating it, and entering into power struggles about food. All of this came from a place of not trusting her and also not trusting that I was doing it right. Fast forward to my third daughter, I am much more relaxed. I just put the food in front of her. She eats what she eats. I don't really comment on it or have an agenda. And it's all quite smooth. I think I would call that growth. Um, I think this is a skill we hone over time with experience. I also think it's interesting that the way we helicopter can vary from child to child. I notice in myself that cliched tendency to be more controlling with my oldest as everything with her is new versus more relaxed with my younger two because I've been here before. So I think it's ongoing, um, but I do think that learning to really trust all three of my girls and to trust myself more ultimately makes me a less anxious mom. Thanks again. Bye. Hey, Sarah and Megan. My name is Mackenzie. I have a five-year-old boy and a six-month-old girl. Last summer when I was pregnant with my daughter, I stepped back from parenting at the playground. So when my son would ask for help on the monkey bars, I would tell him that he could do it or figure it out or to go play something else. And by the end of the summer, he was playing on the monkey bars by himself, getting across without any help at all. And also when he would get into little arguments with uh, other kids about silly things like who can go down the slide first and um, that kind of stuff. I wouldn't step in and try to solve those issues for him. I would make him talk it out with the other kid, even if I knew the kid's parents or not. And with that, he learned how to problem solve and get along with other kids socially better. The one thing that I struggled with while doing this is the judgment from other parents while at the playground. Hi, Sarah and Megan. Here's my helicopter fail. Schools are extremely helpful now that they've created something called Infinite Campus. This has allowed me to obsessively check my child's grades, a child who needs me to stay on top of her, and it was extremely detrimental to our relationship. She was in eighth grade last year, and all I did was check Infinite Campus. Our days were filled with more arguments that I could possibly explain in this email. We ended up in therapy where the therapist told me that that was the worst thing that I could ever do. And she encouraged me to let go of the reins and allow her to fail, literally fail a class. She's not an A student now, but she's on her own and starting to take responsibility. I don't obsessively check her grades anymore, but I do see the importance of consequences when they don't perform to their ability level. This is different for each of our five kids because they are all unbelievably different. 
She has to have an overall average of 85 or better, which she is easily able to attain without me nagging her 24-7. And if she doesn't do that, there are consequences that we attach to her phone because she's obsessed with that. Now, if we could only get her to do her laundry before she runs out of underwear, she'd be able to conquer the world. Thanks for listening. Kara.